Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This week, we visit the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona. Founded in 1929, the Heard Museum's mission is dedicated to educating people about the arts, heritage, and life ways of the indigenous people of the Americas, with an emphasis on American Indian tribes of the Southwest. Committed to the sensitive and accurate portrayal of native arts and cultures, the Heard Museum has successfully combined the stories of American Indian people from a personal perspective with the beauty of art. They showcase old and new handwoven baskets, kachina dolls, and other art and cultural objects. The museum showcases the art and regala of the Apache, Hopi, Navajo, Pueblo, and Yaqui people, to name a few. More than 2,000 items make up the museum's exhibition. Artwork ranging from pottery, baskets, beadwork, dolls, and paintings are on display. Our guest in this edition of Radio Curious is Deborah Kroll, the communications manager at the Heard Museum, who shared portions of the museum with me on December 10th, 2011. We began our visit and our conversation when Deborah Kroll introduced us to the museum and its unique features that reflect the evolution of Southwestern native art. We have some pottery here from ancestral Pueblo times, which is around AD 900 to AD 1000. And it has distinctive motifs showing lightning and rain and water, which is extremely important to people in the Southwest. You're going to see this repeated many, many times in our permanent exhibits. Um, next to the thousand year old pot is about a hundred to 200 year old pot with the little, um, swirly water motifs of a river and next to that are two newer pots also with the river and water motifs and then in the middle is a basket created by a lady by the name of Annie Antone who happens to be a friend of mine from Gila River um, but she's a member of the Donna Often Nation and the basket has the water motif in it and so these are these are motifs and design elements that have come down to us through time that continue to be important to Indian peoples. The herd itself was started in 1929 by a couple by the name of Dwight and May Hurd. Dwight Hurd was a pretty successful businessman. He was actually a distant relative of May Bartlett, who was an heiress to what's now the True Value Hardware fortune. And they met and married in, in Chicago in 1895, and then they came out here shortly afterwards because Dwight had a lung ailment. And back at that time, this is where you came when you had bad lungs because they thought the desert, hot, dry desert air was good for your lungs. And it turned out to be really good for his lungs, and he stayed here until he passed away in 1929. But as soon as they got to Phoenix, one of the first things they encountered was native art. There were people on the, on the street corners selling pots and, and textiles and other, other pieces of art and they fell in love. They became intrigued, entranced, and they started buying it because they really liked it. 
Um, they also employed a couple of Indian art dealers to buy more for them. By the time 1928 rolled around, they had 3,500 pieces of Indian art cramming their home. And so what are you going to do when you have 3,500 pieces of art cramming up your house? Make a museum. Yeah, build a museum. Next, we visited an exhibit representative of the living stick fences, enclosing the yards around the homes of many of the native peoples of the Southwest. This is the entrance to our, our permanent exhibit called Home, Native People in the Southwest. And the whole purpose of this is to show what home means to the, to the first peoples here in the Southwest. And just like there's a a fence in front of the yard to anybody's home. Well, this is the fence to our home. This is a specially commissioned art fence made out of pottery and art glass by Pueblo artists Tony Hohola and Rosemary Lone Wolf. Tony did the, the art glass and Rosemary did the pottery. And there's, it's, it's representative of the living Ocotillo stick fences that are found in homes throughout the Southwest. The Ocotillo, of course, is prickly and it keeps all the critters out and it keeps the kids and domestic animals in. This fence is unique in that it's made of many colors. There's a lot of cultural references here. Um, you're going to see dragonflies. You're going to see a talking stick, which is an awesome personal journal. There's birds in here, there's babies, there's men, there's women, there's lots of corn, there's beans. People can sit here for hours just to see what, what's here. The hmm? talking stick with designs on it? Mm -hmm. The designs are unique to each person. They would carve some special aspect of, of important memories of their lives that they wanted to remember. And there's, there's only one original left in existence because the tradition is is that when the person passes on that the talking stick is is cremated with the person because most of the of the southwestern peoples practice cremation so this is the signature artwork to to our exhibit and this was created by Roxanne Swenzel it's called Seping or the belly button and the home of course is the belly button of life and what it depicts is a typical Pueblo family, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, kids, babies, and they're all enjoying the meal together. Um, the beans are in the middle. There's tepary beans in the, in the clay, clay pottery bowl. Roxanne Swenzel is from the, the Santa Clara Pueblo in New Mexico, and she always creates her pottery people without clothes. The reason for that is so that they're timeless. It doesn't matter you know, if she put whatever period clothing she put on them, they would be outdated sooner or later. And this way, this way you're always free to, put, to imagine them in any time, whether it's in the far reaches of the past, in the far reaches of the future, or today. We next entered the permanent exhibit, which Deborah Kroll said is organized along the environments and cultures of the native peoples of the Southwest. When you first come, you're going to see two maps, the traditional homeland map, which shows how ancient peoples were organized, and the present-day tribal lands, which are the lands which are owned by the, by the present-day tribes, which are pretty much the same tribes as in this traditional homeland map. One of the things that's really interesting to note is that 
the connection between culture and environment. For example, the culture that you find along the Rio Grande is a lot different than the culture that you find in Arizona's central mountains. For one thing, the peoples of the Rio Grande are agricultural people. They stay in one spot. They grow, they grow their crops or they might supplement it by hunting. Whereas the people in the central mountainous regions tend to be snowbirds. They have designated summer homes and designated winter homes. And they go between those two homes through the seasons. Um, they're different than, nomad, than the nomadic peoples of the plateau country in that a certain family or a certain band has an allotted area that belongs to them. It's kind of like the Kumeyaay people in California. They would have certain watercourses that each band would go up and down as the seasons progressed. Where do the Kumeyaay live in California? San Diego County and nor northern um, Baja, Baja, California, Norte. Um, and in fact, there are a lot of similarities between the river peoples, some of the central mountain peoples, and the Kumeyaay because they're all they're all Yuman-speaking peoples. And by the way, they're my they're my relatives because they are Hokan people, and we are Hokan people in in the Salinas Valley. And your background is? I'm a member of the Hoklom or Halon Salinas tribe from Central California coast. And you grew up in the Halon Valley. Yep. Yep, I'm from beautiful downtown San Lucas. We then meandered to an exhibit of the ancestral sites of the native people of the area where four states meet, called the Four Corners. What we're going to explore here are some of the environmental regions. And the first region we usually take people to is Ancestral Pueblo. You might have been to the Mesa Verde National Park. You've been to Chaco Canyon. You've seen cliff dweller homes up in the northern Arizona and southern Utah area. And these are those people. Again, they were agriculturalists, and one way that the archaeologists and anthropologists can tell, besides the fact that their descendants are living along the Rio Grande today, is that they left behind a lot of pottery. People who go migrate between summer and winter homes, and they don't have horses, and they don't have wagons, and they don't have roads, it's really hard for them to cart these heavy pots around. And that's why you see with the snowbird people, as I like to call them, is they have baskets. These people have pots. And these are, these are the traditional black-on-white pottery. You do see occasional red pot in here. Um, they were built on the, the twine quail concept, which is they would make a quail of the, the clay and then wind it around and shape it as they went. <clears throat> One thing that you, you, that's very important to note here is, again, water. A lot of these have water motifs. There's rain, there's lightning, there's swirling water, there's clouds, there's these up and down design aspects, which are clouds. These are all evocative of water because water, again, is scarce in the, in the southwest. In the difference between the white pottery and the clay pottery, is the source of the material different with pigment added or not added? It could be. Sometimes, sometimes the, the, the clay, well, the clay up north tends to be a little bit whiter than the clay down here, plus which there are different materials like red ochre that you could mix in with the, these clays to make more of the red color. The, the black paint is generally like um, mesquite pitch or, or some other, other types of, 
of you know locally available rocks that you can grind into into pigments. Here's something that's really interesting. It looks like a modern travel mug, but it's actually a chocolate mug. Where does the chocolate come from? Well, they traded with it for, from people from Central and South America. There was a lot of trade routes. Um, Indian people have always traded with each other. There are trade routes that go all the way from Utah down to Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras and back again, which is why you're going to see the occasional parrot pot around here because people brought parrots up. Of course, they couldn't breathe, but they were, they were prized for their feathers and they were prized as pets. So putting the, the trade route activity into a time period, when would that be? Um, from time uncounted back all the way up to about 1200 AD. Um, people have traded with each other for thousands of years. Is there a, a concept as to why it stopped in 1200 AD, which um, was long before Europeans came? Um, well, it stopped in this region because around 1200 AD, one of our periodic 100-year droughts started. And as the water sources dried up and there was no water for the crops and no water for the turkeys who provided food and feathers for blankets, um, you know, people were starving and people were desperate. And obviously trade was the last thing on their minds. So the majority of these people migrated over to the Rio Grande where there was a more um, permanent source of water. And probably once they got there, a lot of that resumed again. About the only thing that really and truly disrupted it for good was the coming of the Spaniards, which disrupted a lot of things. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Deborah Kroll, the communications director at the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona. This is Radio Curious on tour. I'm Barry Vogel. Deborah, the concept of the home in the New Mexico Pueblos, is it different in concept from the Arizona Pueblos? There's really only one Pueblo culture people in Arizona, and that's the Hopi. So between the Hopi people and the rest of the Pueblo people in the Rio Grande, there's basically no difference. The, the concept of home amongst other peoples might be a little bit different in that, for example, the Yavapai people are what I like to call snowbird people because they had a summer home and they would have a winter home. And so their concept of home is more around the family and more around um, you know, where, where they were going to be at any particular time. Um, the Apache people, because you know, they tended to be summer winter people, but they were more more of the people who who would travel from place to place and trade or raid or or however other means they used to obtain resources. They are totally family oriented people and so home to them meant their family. Is where the family is, is where as the they, family they is move at about. that particular time, yes. Um, but again, you see that home is always the, 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 heart, the heart of any home is the family. And so a lot of our native cultures 
a, a lot of the heart of our Native cultures is how do we continue the family on, how do we sustain the family, how do we protect the, the pregnant women and the women who are nursing small children, how do we care for the elders who have the accumulated knowledge of, of their tribe, the history, the environment around them, and the keepers of the spiritual practices which holds everything in place. So could you share with us how the elders and the keepers of the spiritual practices are protected? One way that they're protected is that in many, many tribal cultures in the Southwest that the elders are always fed first. This ensures that they make sure that they keep that, that that physical sustenance inside themselves. Elders don't tend to eat much and if it's you know like what you see in a in in other places where if it's, it's a free for all the elders would probably lose out and they would die a lot sooner. But and it's also a measure of respect because we respect our elders. We revere our elders. We know that they are the they are the, the keepers of our spiritual practices. They are the holders of wisdom. They know the cycles of the earth. They know the cosmos. Their role is to make sure that we younger members learn those as we gain wisdom and knowledge and we're able to accept greater and greater realms of knowledge. The elders are the highest, have the highest stores of knowledge of, of all of the, the people in any particular band or community. Are there particular ways in which children or younger people are identified to become the story holders? I can't really speak to that in any other tribe. I just know in my particular tribe. Tell us of yours. Well, the Salinan people. There are certain families, you know, all families have their own little funds of knowledge, but there are certain families in my tribe who have, for lack of anything else, certain power and have a little more knowledge than others, and I'm privileged to be one of those. And so my mother knows a lot of the plant lore. She, she knows a lot about climatic cycles. Um, we have a tradition in our family of clairvoyance where we know when things are gonna happen. But um, at certain times, it's, it's kind of spotty here and there. And so those families obviously have a little more knowledge and a little more power than other families do. There's, other than that, it's, it's just whoever has the most aptitude. One example are, are the two-spirit people, you know, the people who are, who are gay, the, the, you know, and it's mostly, it's mostly men. Um, I'm not sure how they would deal with a woman who is, who is a two-spirit. Um, because back in the old days, it would mostly be the men who had this. They were considered to be extra holy because they had both the man and the woman inside of them. A lot of them became medicine people or, or holy people because they were considered to have, have greater powers. And I know that in certain tribes here in the Southwest that that used to be the case and it may still be the case, but I can't really speak to it as much as someone who has a more intimate knowledge of that tribe than I would. Deborah Kroll, one of the issues that distinguishes many Native cultures from non-Native cultures is the position of women, the matriarchy. Can you tell us about that? 
In native cultures, as in other traditional cultures throughout the globe, after thousands and thousands of years, we have learned how to, how to hold a balance of power between the genders. And one of the ways that balance of power is, is through the matriarchy. In, in many, if not most, native cultures in the Southwest and in California and throughout the United States, the men have a particular gender role. They are the protectors, the providers. They are the ones who put their face out towards the rest of the world. They're, they're built for it, you know, genetically. They're stronger, they're faster. They make good soldiers. They make good political leaders. But on the in interior of our, our communities, the women hold a certain, you know, they, they hold the economic power. They hold the social power. The culture is almost invariably passed down through the woman, which is the reason why Native cultures survived in the midst of all of the upheavals through, you know, through the boarding school era, the reservation era, the relocations, the dislocations, because the United States government, being based on that Judeo-Christian male dominance model, smash the role of men. They thought if they could smash the role of men, they could smash the tribes. But they forgot that traditionally, in traditional societies, the women hold, hold the power, the cultural power, the social power, the economic power. And so the women carried on with their cultural practices totally unmolested, totally left alone by the United States government. And those powers survived. Those powers survived. Yep. And and they're still they're still here today. Um, one of the strongest strongest tribes that, that practices matriarchy are the Pueblo tribes, including the Hopi tribe. And in our Hopi section, you'll see how, how that all plays out with the Katsina dolls, which are teaching tools given to women and to young girls as they, as they master the art of being a Hopi woman and then passing the culture down to the next generation. They are the ones who determine you know, what fields are going to get planted for corn. They are the ones who, who basically rule the roost. They are, they are the heads of their families. The men have a certain role in that they are the political leaders, the, the war leaders, but they have to defer to the grandmothers. When you say uh, they have a certain role, are you speaking in the current context or in more of a historical perspective? Um, it, more of a historical perspective. However, today in Hopi land, it's exactly the same as it was generations past. That the, the grandmothers still tell the men when to plant the corn and what fields to plant the corn in. Um, and they, they continue on with the spirit. There are priests who are men. And they're a priest, um, you know, and they they get the visions of which kachinas are going to emerge from the kivas that year. That's part of their role. But the women, the women make sure that that gets done. In other words, and so that's how the matriarchy basically preserved tribal culture all over the United States. And here is an exhibit of. Akama mm -hmm. pottery, which mm -hmm. is particularly unique to mm -hmm. Akama. Yes. Can you tell us about it? The Akama pottery is distinguished because it has very thin walls. It's also, some of the, the motifs are a little bit different 
than other pueblos. However, if you look closely, you'll still see you'll still see the water motif. You see the birds. Birds are birds will point you to where the water is. There's also the elements of rain, the elements of of flowers. There's there's more there's some parrots. Remember I was telling you earlier about the parrots that they brought up and they're very highly sought after by collectors today. I can see why. Yeah, they're absolutely gorgeous. Well, Deborah Kroll, I want to thank you for extending this time with us in a radio curious visit here at the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona. And before we close, I'd like to ask you a few questions, if I may. Okay. And one is, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment in your life that's influenced you, that you rely on? Well, there's been many, but one one I think your your listeners would really like to hear is one time I, I was privileged to consult with a medicine man, a Kiowa medicine man by the name of John White Shirt Sr., Kiowa and Arapaho. Very, very, very holy man, very wise man. And in that half hour I spent with him, I learned so much about my own responsibilities, my own responsibilities as a spiritual person. But, and I learned a, a very great insight into world culture. He says that he was sitting in front of his house one day on his front porch step, and there was the electric line that runs in front of his home. He says, and I, he says, and I had a vision. He says, now see it in your mind. See that electric poles. And I go, okay. He says, now you see the, the, the wire going through and the electricity that flows through it? And I said, yeah. He says, well, that's God. He says, you see all those poles holding up the electric line and the electric electricity that flows through it? And I said, yep. Those are the religions. That was profound. That was very profound. It really illustrates how all of us peoples, various peoples of the world share that sense of the Almighty. And it doesn't matter if you call him Allah or Jehovah or God or if you if you worship the 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 goddesses that the English traditional people worship, it's still the Almighty. It's still God. And can you tell us what you would like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Well, I definitely am delving more into the the responsibility of becoming a matriarch in my own sense. My mother is giving me more and more advanced knowledge of, of my of my culture and I'm starting to take on more of the roles of a matriarch and the responsibilities and a lot of that involves not talking bad about other people, not wishing bad upon other people, always trying to look to the good. Um, when you do a ceremony you, you think good thoughts and you think good, you, you, you wish for good things for that person. It doesn't matter if they've done you evil, if, if they're not in, in a good shape. The whole thing that you pray for is for them to heal. There's a lot of spiritual sicknesses in people. And one of the best things you can do is figure out how to lance that boil and drain out that spiritual illness. And that's what I try to do. It's a nice thing. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? There's actually two books because I know a lot of people that listen in from California and a lot of the things that happen to people in California or to the needy peoples of California really need 
people really need to know about. And one of those books is called Ishii's Brain by Oren Starn. Tells the real story of Ishii and also gives a lot of the knowledge of, of what's happened to California Indian peoples. And the other one is a book that Kent G. Lightfoot wrote. You know, he was the former director of the Phoebe Hearst Museum called Indians, Merchants, and Missionaries. That is one of the best historical books about the differences between the, the tribes who interface with the Russians and the tribes who interface with the Spaniards and why when the Americans came they dealt with those two sets of tribes differently. Deborah Kroll, thank you very much for being with us uh, at the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona on Radio Curious. Well, thanks for doing this, Barry. We really appreciate your visit and we hope that you come and see us again. The Heard Museum is dedicated to educating people about the arts, heritage, and life ways of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, with emphasis on the American Indian tribes of the Southwest. The museum is located in Phoenix, Arizona. Deborah Kroll recommends two books, Ishi's Brain by Oren Starn, and Indians, Merchants, and Missionaries, The Legacy of Colonial Encounters on the California Frontiers by Kent G. Lightfoot. Our Radio Curious interview with Oren Starn may be found on our website. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.